responsibility that I have as a pastor to ask this question. How many of you are cheering for the 49ers today? How many of you are cheering for the Chiefs today? And how many of you could not possibly care less? Ah, the winning crowd right there. So, so my entire life, I have been a Rams fan, a rabid Rams fan. Strangely, for some reason, they are not in the Super Bowl this year because everybody has to take a year off now and then. Um, and, uh, and that was all going just fine until a rabid 49ers fan married into my family. And she shows up at church today wearing 49ers gear, an abomination unto the Lord. But... We're going to pray for her deliverance. I cannot root for the 49ers, so go Chiefs. That's what I have to say. Okay, another question. How many of you know, show of hands, how many of you know somebody who really struggles with modern technology? You know somebody, you know, that they can't figure out their cell phone and the computers and all the social media. How many of you are that person? Yes, okay. That's that's about equal. Man, he's raising his head. He's like a computer genius back there. Um, so uh, when, when my dad was getting up in age and his, his mind was not where it used to be, um, he desperately wanted to learn to use the computer and interact on the internet and figure all that stuff out. And so we got him set up with an email address and everything and uh, we even signed him up for a class at the senior center on how to use your computer and all that stuff. And nevertheless, I would get calls two or three times a day from my dad. And I have to change the language here, but he would say, my gosh darn computer is broken again. It just won't do what it's supposed to do. And we could never get him convinced that the computer is working fine. It's not the computer. But uh, some of us struggle with some of the new technology. If, that, if you can relate to that at all, then you can have some sort of connection to what was going on when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and all of his listeners come from a Jewish tradition. All of the listeners there are just... Um, inundated in their mind and their whole mental model and the way that they approach life in, in all that they have been taught as Jews up until that point. And here comes this rabbi who is going to teach them something else. If you, if you ever saw um, the Fiddler on the Roof, according to Fiddler on the Roof, there's one thing Jews hold closest to. The thing they love the most is their tradition, right? And, and so here's all these people who have been so influenced by their tradition. Their parents were influenced by the same tradition. Their grandparents were influenced by the same tradition. All of their friends and coworkers, everybody they know, sort of approaches life in the same way based on Jewish tradition. And along comes Jesus and blows all that tradition out of the water in one sermon. And he doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush. He dives right into the Beatitudes. He, he sort of redefines blessedness in ways nobody had ever, ever thought of before. And then he tells them, listen, it's actually your responsibility not just to follow a bunch of laws and traditions, but actually to be a blessing to the people that are in the world. You are to be salt. You are to be light. And we talked about that the last couple of weeks. To most of those people... The Beatitudes alone must have been baffling. 
And, and they could not understand so much about Jesus already, and this is just the beginning of his public ministry, but they had, had heard no doubt about his baptism, which was a very strange ritual for them. They, they didn't understand what that was all about. Um, they, they did not like and they did not understand the way he dealt with social outcasts and he treated them like they were people and that they ought to be loved and treated with respect and dignity. They said he, he hung out with drunkards and prostitutes. He was willing to go to people who were ceremonially unclean and actually touch them and minister to them and care for them. And all of this stuff is happening. They, they didn't like the way he behaved on the Sabbath. That, that blew them out of the water. Um, to the Jew in Jesus' day, everything about him was odd and strange and unfamiliar. And yet, there's something about him that is also incredibly attractive. There's something about him that just is refreshing and, and it's authentic and and it's authoritative. Remember, we saw that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the commentary is that everyone who heard it was amazed because he spoke as one having authority, not as somebody who was just passing down what had been passed down to him, but he was speaking as if he was the source of this truth, and there was something inside of them that says, yeah, I kind of think he is. There's something different about this guy, and he caught their attention. So the people looked at Jesus the, the, the way a, a 90-year-old looks at a new cell phone. It says, what, what, do I, what am I supposed to do with this? I, I can see that it's interesting. I can see that there might be some value here, but I don't get it, and I don't understand how to get it. And if that effect was already taking place at the beginning of his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount just accelerated that for people. And now they're looking, even as he's speaking, and they're thinking, oh my goodness, this is so different. I'm not even sure if this is okay. What are we supposed to think of what he's saying? He's already challenged them with the Beatitudes to think differently about what matters in life. He's already told them that they are to be salt and earth together and individually um, and, and Jesus is now going to address the question that is on everybody's mind by this point, which is, is this guy from God or not? What are we supposed to think of him? What are we supposed to do with him? And in, in their minds, the best way to figure out the answer to that question was simply to observe how he dealt with the law and the teaching of the prophets. So Jesus jumps right into that discussion. We're in Matthew chapter five. Hopefully you have a Bible with you or some digital device that will help you to get your Bible online there. We're in uh, Matthew chapter five where we've been for some time now. We're gonna start today in verse 17 and cover about four verses and just hear what the Lord has to say. So follow along as I read Matthew five seventeen. Do not think, says Jesus, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he goes on and says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, 
For us to understand this, we're gonna have to dig in a little bit. Um, We're gonna have to define some terms. In fact, I'm gonna just ask you, you're gonna need to bear with me a little bit today because this message is going to feel more like a college lecture than it feels like a typical sermon because there are some things that are very, very easy to misunderstand in what Jesus is saying here and there's some things that will go right over our head if we don't get some context and some explanation. So we're gonna actually have to define some terms, we're gonna have to dig in and think carefully to find out what is he talking about here and what do we think of what he's talking about here. First, What was Jesus talking about when he mentions the law and the prophets? Well, the phrase the law and the prophets is a phrase that refers to the entirety of the Old Testament. Over and over again, this phrase is used. It's used in scripture. It was used normally in their culture at that time. And when they used the phrase the law and the prophets, they were talking about the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, the entire thing. But let's talk about the law, let's talk about the prophets, let's talk about what it means to fulfill those things and not to abolish them. Let's start with the law. There are three general types of law in the Old Testament, and it's important for us to understand these three different types for us to understand and evaluate what Jesus is saying here. The first is what's called the moral law. Now, the moral law is what most of us are familiar with, the Ten Commandments, right? Passed down to Moses, Moses passes them down to the people they are passed down generationally. Every good Jewish kid learns the Ten Commandments before he learns to tie his shoes. I don't think they had shoelaces, but you know what I'm saying, right? And, and the Ten Commandments become the basis of all moral activity, and by the way, continue to be the basis for all moral activity in culture. If you go to Washington, D.C., where there's so much being said about separation of church and state, and you go to the Supreme Court, where the biggest decisions for our country are made, what you will find etched into the walls of the Supreme Court building are the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, that's the basis for moral law, and there are a bunch of moral uh, laws that come out of those Ten Commandments. There are ways to keep those Ten Commandments. So when we talk about the moral law, we're talking about the commandments. When we talk about judicial law, or sometimes it's called civil law, we're talking about the national laws that related to the nation of Israel as a country. If you were a citizen of that country, these were the laws that you followed. And they dealt with crimes, they dealt with how to um, just deal with day-to-day issues, and they even dealt with how to handle uh, the settlement of disputes, how to deal with property issues, inheritance, all of that kind of stuff. That would be in the judicial law that they have because they are citizens of the nation of Israel. Now, you and I have uh, national laws, and we have state laws, and we have civic laws in the city that apply to us. If you're not a part of this nation, not a part of this state, you have other laws, right? And that's the idea. This is a governmental law book, basically. That's the judicial law. And then the third thing is there's the ceremonial law. And those are laws that have to do with worship, including Uh, The sacrificial system, which is very, very ornate in the Old Testament. 
Um, and even more ornate when you add the ancient teachings of the rabbis and how they interpreted the Old Testament and put those laws into place. It, it deals with offerings. How do I make an offering to the Lord? When do I make an offering to the Lord? What is an offering that the Lord accepts, etc., etc.? It had to do with ceremonial cleansing, times when you might be ceremonially unclean and how do you have purity again when you've been ceremonially unclean? And we're gonna come back to all of that But now, let's think about what Jesus meant by the prophets. This refers to the prophetic books of the Old Testament. So there's a lot of them. That would be things like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Amos and Hosea and those kinds of books. They're they're books where God is speaking directly to the people of Israel through a prophet. And those writings are recorded and those are called the books of the prophets. So the Old Testament... Um, is made up of the law and the prophets. And, and the prophets in those days served the people in three basic ways. The first thing they did was they taught the law. So they were sort of the preachers of the day. They were the ones who did the teaching and explaining and all of that. The second thing was they spoke to, God, to the people on God's behalf. That is to say that there were times when without a written Bible for them to look to, God would have a message for his people and he would speak to a prophet, let's say Isaiah, and then Isaiah would go and bring that message word for word, verbatim, from God to the people. So when a prophecy was spoken, it was not like the way some people talk about prophecy today where somebody stands up and says, I I think this is gonna happen or I think this. This is when God is actually, has nothing to do with what I think. This is when God is speaking through a person, the very words of God, and that was one of the things that the Old Testament prophets did. And the third thing is, they sometimes foretold future events. And and the most common way they did that was with relationship to the coming Messiah. There would be a Savior coming one day. They constantly talked about what would be the signs and the marks of that Messiah coming, and also some things about what will happen in the last days. And a lot of this is shadowy, and a lot of this is unclear, and a lot of it no one understood at the time until it was fulfilled later. Just like a lot of the Old Testament, I mean, the, the end times prophecy that we see and say, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, these kind of places that talk about what's gonna happen in the very last days. And it's very shadowy with poetic language and there's lots of metaphor and analogy and all that kind of stuff. And we kind of look at it and we go, well, I think it might mean this. And somebody goes, well, I think it might mean that. But the truth of the matter is when it happens, it's gonna be obvious what it means. And the prophets often spoke about what was coming in a way that wasn't that clear to everybody, but would later become very clear when it actually happened. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the prophets. And finally, let's, deter, let's uh, define the word fulfill. And, and you think, well, we know what fulfill means. Well, I don't know if you know what this Greek word means. Because in English, even the word fulfill in English, I bet if you looked it up in like a Webster's Dictionary, there would probably be five or six minimum definitions for fulfill. When you, when you fulfill an obligation, when you fulfill an order, when you, um, there's all these various ways that you fulfill something. But in the Greek, it's a little bit more clear. In the Greek, this term doesn't refer to continuing something that has already begun. It, and, and this is one of the ways that it's been misunderstood. 
Um, too many people have thought, oh, well, basically, Jesus is just another person in Judaism. He's another one of the prophets. He's another one of the teachers. He's another one of the guys that's going to move Judaism ahead and all of that. So what God already began, Jesus is just continuing in Judaism. That's not what the word fulfill means here. But he also doesn't mean he's going to abolish it. He says very clearly, I'm not here to abolish it. And that Greek word means to crush and disseminate. He says, I'm not gonna destroy the teaching of the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. And that Greek word means to meet a requirement or carry out a mandate. So, so if, if uh, you're a teenager and your dad is leaving for the day and before he leaves, he says, before I get home today, I want the lawn mowed, I want the weeds pulled, and I want the trash taken out. And if you mow the lawn, pull the weeds, and take out the trash before he gets home, you have fulfilled the mandate. That's what the Greek word means. Jesus is saying the Old Testament exists to describe what the Messiah must be and what the Messiah must do, and I am here to fulfill that mandate. So Jesus is actually taking on the idea that he has a mission, he has a mandate to fulfill, and he is here to fulfill it. All right, so Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, he came to fulfill them. And make no mistake, he's not trying to get rid of the Old Testament. Jesus was a huge fan of the Old Testament. Jesus studied the Old Testament. Jesus taught the Old Testament. Jesus constantly quotes from the Old Testament and refers to the Old Testament in his preaching. And Jesus lived his life in accordance with the Old Testament, which no one else had ever successfully done. And remember, Jesus is God, which means he inspired the Old Testament. These words came from him. This is not something he rejects. This is not something he denies. This is not something he detests. It's his word. And so he's not here to abolish any of that. And by the way, if you're not aware of this, Jesus is also the subject of the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament is designed to point us to Jesus. That's what the whole story is about. And once you've read the New Testament, once you understand the gospel and you know who Jesus is, when you go back and read the Old Testament, you realize he's in every chapter. You see him everywhere. He's constantly there. They're always pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament is and always will be the timeless, true word of God. The whole Old Testament. Not only is Jesus not trying to ignore or eliminate the Old Testament, but in verse 18, he says, you better not do that either. He, he says, not one stroke of the pen will be taken away from, from the prophets and the law until all has been accomplished, the end of time. The whole thing points to him. So, so Jesus is saying he's the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He alone keeps the law perfectly. His life is the fulfillment of the prophecies about the Messiah. He has this role now, this mission that he's gonna carry out. So the question for us is, looking back, was he successful at that? 
Did Jesus actually fulfill the law and the prophets? Because remember, we're in Matthew 5. This is the beginning of his ministry. He hasn't done most of what he's going to do yet. And so did Jesus, in fact, fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, let's evaluate it. And, and again, this is, this is more of an intellectual process today. I, I want us to understand what he means, and I want us to evaluate what he's saying to figure out the truth. So let's think about whether he fulfills the law. And let's start with the judicial law. Jesus fulfills the judicial law on the cross. Remember, the judicial law had to do with how the people of Israel were expected to conduct themselves as the people of God. Israel was designed as a nation by God as what's called a theocracy. That is to say, God is the king of Israel. And God kept pushing that and pushing that and pushing that and the people kept rejecting it and rejecting it and rejecting it. And they said, we want a human king, we want a human king. And pretty soon God relented and let them have a human king and most of the human kings who led the nation of Israel over the centuries led them astray. He designed the whole system where he was to be the king. But they rejected that. Well, they rejected it to the fullest in the person of Jesus. Because when Jesus comes, the Jews hang him on a cross. When the very Messiah that they have been looking forward to comes, they reject him out of hand. In fact, remember remember when the crowd is gathered in Pilate's courtyard and they're chanting, crucify, crucify, and, and Pilate is like, you know, there's no fault that I can find in this guy. And the very high priests, the leaders, the Pharisees shout out, let his blood be on our hands. Put him to death. They reject him. He is God in the flesh and they say no to him and they hang him on a cross. And when they hang the Messiah on the cross, that marks the breaking point of this unique relationship between God and the nation of Israel. They have said, we will no longer be under your rulership, God. We will no longer recognize you as our king. We're gonna do things our own way. So national civil laws... They, they apply to whatever nation you're a part of, right? So, for example, uh, I'm told that in the nation of Singapore, it is illegal to chew chewing gum in public. And this is because they want to keep their streets clean. So they have a national law. You cannot chew chewing gum in public. I'm guessing one day some high government official stepped in some gum and said, we're going to do something about this. They, they shut it down. You cannot chew chewing gum. And by the way, you think, oh, if you get caught, they tell you to spit it out. You actually get beaten if you get caught. It's a huge issue. So if you were Singaporean and you lived in Singapore, my strong suggestion to you is don't chew gum in public. And you have a responsibility not to do it because you are in fact a a citizen of that nation. Now if you're an American, you live in the United States where chewing gum is legal, have at it. Blow bubbles, do the whole thing, have a great time. But if you're in Singapore, you have to be under Singapore laws. If you're in California, you're under California laws. That's how it works, right? That's what civil law is all about. But when the people no longer relate to their leader as the authority, 
those laws are no longer enforced. When a, when a government is overthrown, then suddenly they have to write new laws because the, the old laws go away. Each of us as, as citizens of a nation are responsible to follow the laws of our own nation. And that's what the Jews were responsible for. Those were the civil laws. And when they crucified the Messiah, that marked the interruption of God's dealing with them as the people of God, as a nation. So the judicial law had uh, completed its purpose, no longer served a purpose. It no longer had authority over the people of Israel as a nation. They had chosen man-made laws and they had rejected their lawmaker. And, And just... So you know that I'm not making this up. I want you to go to Matthew 21 because Jesus says as much. In Matthew 21, as you're turning there, let me just kind of tell you the story. Jesus is gonna tell a parable. It's known as the parable of the landowner and it goes something like this. Jesus says, once there was a wealthy landowner and he decided to go away for some time and he owned a vineyard. And so he rented out the vineyard to some sharecroppers and it was their responsibility to um, manage the vines and they did so and when it came time for the harvest they were to pay him the first fruits of the vineyard so the landowner sent a representative to collect and when the representative came they beat him so he sent a second representative and when that representative came they killed him So he sent yet a third representative, and when that representative came, they stoned him too. And so the landowner said, you know what? They'll have to respect my son. I'm gonna send my only son. And he sends his only son to collect, and they say to themselves, now he's sent his son. If we kill him, then we will become heirs, and there'll be nothing he can do about it. And so they kill the landowner's only son, Do you see the connection to the story Jesus is telling? Now, pick it up in chapter uh, chapter 21 of Matthew. We're gonna look at verse 40. He finishes that story. And in verse 40, he says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they, they is the uh, religious leaders. They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Jesus is telling exactly what's happening. They have God has sent one prophet after another, after another, after another. And they have rejected these prophets and they have killed these prophets over and over again. And finally he sends his only son and they're gonna kill him too. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying when that happens, 
the kingdom of God, the rulership of God, the kingship of God in your life will be ripped away from you and it will be given to a people who actually will bear the fruit and those people, it turns out, are Gentiles. And, and in that sense, what's happening is the nation of Israel and the kingship of God are separated. There's a break between the two. Now, that's the civil law. What about the ceremonial law? The ceremonial law, which is very, if you read the book of Leviticus and some of these other Old Testament books, you just see law after law after law. This is how, you, how many birds you have to sacrifice if you do this. This is what you have to do if you touch a dead animal. This is uh, how you have to pray. This is the only way you can worship. This is what the priest will have to do. Very specific, we have to shake an amount of blood upon the altar. All of these things, that's all the ceremonial law, right? The ceremonial law was a temporary system that God put in place and designed to point people to the Messiah, It was a sacrificial system. It governed the way that people could come into the presence of God as worshipers. You couldn't just run into the temple and say, hey, I'm here, I'm gonna worship God. There was a a giant veil between the area that the priests could even go into and what's called the Holy of Holies where the glory of God resided and you could not go beyond that veil unless you were the high priest once a year and then only for a very specific moment and if you were not clean ceremonially, you would be killed the minute you stepped beyond the veil. Remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Remember what happened to the veil. The earth shook and the veil tore from top to bottom, from top to bottom. The veil that separated God from the people was torn by God himself. There's no longer a separator. Jesus had been the one who took away that separation by his sacrifice. There's no longer a need to have these sacrifices that are temporary at best. And so um, the way that sins are forgiven, that was all part of the ceremonial law. Uh, It governed issues of purity. That was all part of the ceremonial law. And all those things were realized in the person of Jesus. He became the once and for all, one and only sacrifice that was acceptable to the Father. Now, in the book of Hebrews, I want you to turn to Hebrews. It's in the back of your um, New Testament. And if you, if you get to like uh, James and Peter and John, you went too far, go to Hebrews, and I want, I want us to look together at Hebrews chapter 10. I don't have time to teach this whole chapter, but I want to point out some verses that make this point very clear. Remember, this is the book of Hebrews. It is written to the Jewish people to say, listen, this is the way you used to think, this is the way you've always been taught, but this is the way in Christ that it is. That's Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse one. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. 
So even take, take uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, one day a year when every Jew represented by the high priest is going to have their sins forgiven symbolically. And there's a goat upon which they sprinkle blood and they pray over this goat and they symbolically put the sins of the people on the goat and then they send the goat out to the wilderness, never to be seen again. He carries away the sins of the people. This is the Day of Atonement, and it's practiced every single year, even to this day, although without the temple, without the goats. But this is where we get the term scapegoat. This is the scapegoat. This is the one who carries away the sins on someone else's behalf. And he's saying that never actually cleansed anyone's sins. It's just a symbol of the one who would become the scapegoat. Take the Passover. Again, national holiday. The Passover lamb is slaughtered in a certain way. His blood is used in a certain way. They eat the same meal every time, ask the same questions every time, and it's this picture of them, uh, God passing his judgment over the people of Israel and not not um, pronouncing his judgment upon them. And there is a perfect lamb that has to be slaughtered and Jesus says, I am the perfect Passover lamb. It's once and for all and Hebrews describes that to us. Skip down Hebrews 10.10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Verse 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Once and for all, Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law. But what about the moral law? Does Jesus fulfill the moral law? He does so by living perfectly according to the moral law, without one failure, without one mistake, without one misstep, without one sin. Jesus, a human being, lives perfectly according to the law. He's the only one who's ever done it. He's the only one who ever will do it. He's the only one who can do it. So he lives a perfect sinless life. Uh, We're still in Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter four and let's look at this. In Hebrews chapter four, beginning in in verse 14, listen to what it says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. And the next three words are circled in my Bible, yet without sin. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. So clearly, Jesus fulfills the whole law on our behalf. What about the prophets? 
The Old Testament is filled with prophecies about the coming Messiah. In fact, Bible scholars tell us that there are at least 60 major prophecies about the coming Messiah and another 270 of what they consider sub-prophecies or ramifications of those 60 prophecies. You add that together, you get roughly 330 prophetic statements that describe who the Messiah will be, when he will come, what he will do, what he will be like, what his genealogy will be, all of that. It's all described in the Old Testament. There's 330 examples of that, and every single one of them has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the last days by one person only, Jesus of Nazareth. It's an amazing thing. Now, now you may be thinking, yeah, that is amazing, but I mean, couldn't, couldn't that be a coincidence? Well, scientists actually have studied all of this. And, and the science of probability tells us what the likelihood is of this being a coincidence. Basically, they say it's impossible. The odds of all those prophecies being fulfilled in one person is one in 10 to the 157th power. Now, for those of you who don't remember anything beyond sixth grade math, may help you understand that. That is a 10 followed by 157 zeros. I don't even know what the name of that number is because we never have to use it. That's, that's more than the stars in the universe. Now, that number is too large for us to grasp. So let's try to be able to wrap our minds around this a little bit. Let's make it a significantly smaller number. Instead of a 300 prophecies, let, let's get down to eight prophecies. What are the, I'm talking science now, the laws of probability, statistical probability of one human being fulfilling eight specific preordained prophecies in their life. Uh, and I'm not talking about kind of prophecies where it'd be like, well, he's going to have hair and um, he will wear a belt. Like, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this. I'm just, I got eight here. Number one, he would be born in Bethlehem. That's Micah chapter five, verse two. He would be preceded by a messenger who would have a very specific message and the specific message is laid out for us in Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. He would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That's Zechariah 9.9. He, he would be betrayed by a close friend who ate with him. That's Psalm 41, verse 9. He would be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. That's Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. And that those 30 pieces of silver would be thrown back into the temple, would be gathered up and used to buy a potter's field. And that's a pretty specific statement, isn't it? It comes to us from Zechariah eleven thirteen That he would stand silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53, 7. That he would be crucified, Psalm 22, verse 16, Zechariah 12, verse 10, Isaiah 53, verse 12. That's eight things. And statisticians tell us the probability of even those eight prophecies being fulfilled in one man is one in 10 to the 17th power. That is a 10 followed by 17 zeros. We do have a name for that number. It is 100 quadrillion. And you're like, oh, 100 quadrillion, that's what I have in my savings account right now, right? <laughs> no, you're thinking, oh, that's how much they charge me in taxes this year. Um, 100 quadrillion, that's the number. A, a one followed by 18 zeros or a 10 followed by 17 zeros. 100 quadrillion. 
One in a hundred quadrillion, that's the possibility of one person fulfilling those eight prophecies. I saw it illustrated this way uh, by Josh McDowell. He, he said, if we took a hundred quadrillion silver dollars and we laid them out side by side touching each other across the state of Texas from border to border, it would create a pile of silver dollars two feet high across the entire state of Texas. And he said, and if we were to take a marker and put a blue dot in the middle of one of those coins, throw it into the mix and mix them all up, and a two foot high pile of silver dollars existed all the way across the state of Texas, and then we sent a blindfolded man in and told him, find the one with the mark. If he found the one with the mark on his first try, that would be equal to the chances of one man fulfilling these eight prophecies. That's what scientists call a statistical impossibility. It's not possible. Think about it this way. In Genesis 9 and 10, we have the Noahic flood, right? And after the flood, we just have Noah and his family. And Noah has three sons. And the, and the Messiah is prophesied to come through the line of Shem, one of his sons. That eliminates two-thirds of all future people right there. Okay, Genesis 12 says he'll be a descendant of Abraham. In Genesis 17, we're told he'll be a descendant of Isaac. In Genesis 28, we're told he'll be a descendant of Jacob. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons, 11 12, so the remaining possibilities are removed when we're told he'll come from the tribe of Judah. And in Isaiah 11, we're told he'll come from the line of Jesse, who comes from the tribe of Judah. But the problem there is Jesse has eight sons. So seven-eighths of the people are removed when we're told he will come from the line of David, the son of Jesse. In Psalm 22 and in Zechariah 12, we're told that the Messiah's hands and feet will be pierced through when he is hung on a tree. The practice of crucifixion did not get invented for another 800 years after that. But they already said exactly how he would die. Isaiah 7 tells us he'll be born of a virgin. Now, now I don't know what your mom told you about your conception, but I'm just gonna go with that's a very unusual thing. He's born of a virgin, the one and only person ever to be born of a virgin. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the chief cornerstone that crushes the preceding system. He's rejected by the Jews. He's received by the Gentiles. This is not mythology. This is not revisionist history. These are indisputable historical facts. And I could go on and on and on and on and on and on, but somebody told me there's a football game later today, so I'm gonna wrap this up. Here's my point, in case you haven't got it. Jesus alone fulfilled the law and the prophets, just like he said he would. And right here in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes the claim that he fulfills all of this and that our only hope for salvation depends on it. Go back to Matthew 5. We'll wrap it up here in verse 20. 
For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees are the most religious people the world has ever seen. They are the ones who know every detail of the biblical law and the man-made law. They are the ones who, who, who take it to its finest point. They're the ones that everybody looks at and says, now that's the symbol of righteousness. And Jesus says, if you could ever live up to that level of righteousness, it wouldn't come close to the righteousness needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're gonna need a better righteousness, he says. Where is that better righteousness gonna come from. It can only come from one. Those Pharisees carried themselves with an air of religious perfection, but they weren't even able to keep the biblical law, let alone the thousands of rabbinical laws that had been added by them. Even the righteousness of those Pharisees fell short of the requirement for heaven. A more perfect righteousness was required and that, my friends, is why we need Jesus. It's why we all need Jesus. It's why there's not a human being that has been born or ever will be born that will not need Jesus. He did what we could not do. He fulfilled the law and the prophets on our behalf so that we might inherit his righteous standing, not by the blood of bulls, not by the blood of goats, not by the blood of lambs, but by the blood of the lamb. The king of kings and lord of lords would be the only way and there would be no other way. Jesus offers a righteousness that is infinitely superior to the pseudo-righteousness of even the most religious people on the planet. It is only by his perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets, by his perfect sacrifice, by his amazing grace, that we can even hope to experience the kingdom of heaven, and he offers it to us free of charge because he already paid your price and mine. That, my friends, is the gospel. And with that in mind, Jesus will go on in this great sermon to describe what kingdom living looks like. But for us, the question remains, will I continue to ignore the overwhelming evidence so that I can still insist on being my own king at least from time to time? Or will I recognize that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Will I bow the knee and cry out to God for forgiveness and grace? The King of kings and Lord of lords is the way, the truth, the life, and apart from him there is no other. The only way for us to experience that forgiveness is through the sacrifice of Christ who fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill and fulfilled the prophecies that we were not designed to fulfill. It's an incredible picture. Let's bow our heads and think about it. And if you've been listening today to this and finally you've seen the evidence and said, well, this is overwhelming evidence, there, there is no other way. If you've been thinking about Jesus and wondering if he really is who he claims to be, if, if there really ought to be this place where I bow the knee and allow Jesus to be my king and my Lord, and if that's something you've been thinking about, if that's something you've been wondering about, I just wanna put all that to rest today. The evidence is overwhelming. Jesus is who he says he is, and you can't get to heaven without him. 
And so if that's you, I just want to implore you, take the moment now and just silently in the quiet of your own heart, talk to Jesus. Tell him, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't fulfill the law. I've come so short. I believe that Jesus is the son of God that he died on a cross to set me free from my sin. Lord, come into my life as king, not just an acquaintance. And the scripture says that when we turn our life over to him, he accepts that invitation and gives us new life. Or maybe as you're sitting here today, you know that you have that in Christ, but you also know that your focus has been way off. That that you have allowed yourself to be king in several different areas of your life, or maybe even just one. And now is the time for you to bow the knee and say, Lord Jesus, take the rest of me. Take it all. He promises to do it. Father, we we come before you just humbled in your presence. It's amazing to think about just this little bit of evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. And we have evidence in our own experience that we've watched what you've done. We've seen your provision. We have seen how you have met our needs and how you have reached out to us in love. And so God, I just pray that you would meet us where we are, each one of us individually in a different place that you would guide us and direct us to a place where the lordship of Christ is absolutely the focus of our lives. For we bow the knee and we lift our hands and we confess that you are the Lord, the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.